Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Danya Ruttenberg. Danya writes books about the messy business of trying to be a person in the world and how spirituality can inform and transform that work. Sometimes she writes about parenting, sometimes feminism, sex, God, justice, or joy. It's all interconnected for her. Her most recent book is Nurture the Wow, and it's just been released in paperback. I give you Danya Ruttenberg. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Danya, this is the second time we've talked on a podcast, and I feel like uh, I said something to you offline when we're talking on the phone that you're one of the friends I don't lose time with. It's true. We just sort of check in and it's like wherever you are is hey you know but i i again what i said before is that you know i think this is a a feature of like healthy adult friendships is that if you can check in with somebody and you don't have to you know it's like oh well you missed the whole lap you know you could just say like this is where i am today and it's like great i'm i'm happy to hear where you are today do you have local healthy adult friendships well yeah yeah a few I don't have time for a lot of uh, friendship nurturing. That's a lot of my uh, my challenge is that I have a job and I have three little kids and I'm married. Um, and those things take up a lot of my time. Um, so Shabbat is usually the time when we see friends. Um, we have people over for lunch or we go over someplace for dinner for lunch or for dinner or whatever. We see people at synagogue. Um but finding other time that's like, we're going to come over for dinner or we're all going to go out or we're going to, what, get coffee or drink. Um, that's trickier. It happens, but it's trickier. Do you feel like this is the gift of Shabbat for like a secular culture? Like whether or not you believe in God, like just a space to say, hey, we're not going to produce right now. Like we're, we're Human gonna, beings we're need that. Yeah. 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 It's time to... I mean, it's so many things. It's time to stop. It's time to kind of let go of being a producer and a creator and just remember that uh, your value intrinsically is in who you are and in your being and not in your doing and what you do for other people. Um, a time to just get into refresh, regenerate zone. Um, for those of us who turn off technology, it's a time to sort of Look at a tree. And you, you know? literally do that. Like, I will testify. We've messaged on Facebook. Okay, I'm signing off for Shabbat. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not online. It's It goes away. And I, you know, and it changes my experience. Because even that, you know, even when you're you're sort of out in the, the world, that pull of like, oh, God, is something important happening in my inbox? It's like, it doesn't matter. Your job right now is to be in the present moment. and um, And it's interesting, particularly after holidays where you're offline for two or even three days if it's a two-day holiday and then Shabbat. And then you go back online and it's like such a sensory onslaught. Like there's just, it's so overwhelming because you've gotten used to this kind of slower pace of, of being. Um, and I think it's healthy and I think we need that periodically. So um, could we read Nurture yeah. the Wow as an update of, which is out in paperback and everyone should buy it. But like part of the, the gift of the Torah, right? Like is you, you can take the Israelites out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're, 
we're working, we're doing it, we're getting it done. So mm. it's part of like the Torah and part of nurture the wow, the same message. Like it's an update of the Torah in the sense of, hey, nurture the inner child because Chesterton says our creator is younger than we are because you're as young as your dreams and as old as your mm. cynicism. And so part mm. of like <laughs> nurture the wow is a book that's saying, hey, pay attention to simplicity and wonder at least one day a week. Yeah. I mean, the message of Nurture the Wow is pay attention to that all the time. Or, I mean, you know, and that it's not always going to be wonder, right? Sometimes it's going to be wonder and radical amazement. And sometimes you pay attention and you're going to tune in to your anger and your frustration and your old pain and whatever. But uh, pay attention to the thing that's right in front of you and see that. See the kid that's right there waiting to be seen and not your weird projections of how you weren't loved right, whatever. Like, don't dump your stuff on this kid. Don't see the kid as a, a bit player in the the movie starring you, right? Behold them on their terms. And there is just this, the work of, of getting into the present moment that has to happen. Um and yeah, I mean, you know, that's a lot of the the longing of the Israelites too. I've never thought about it this way, but they've it's true that they're, you know, where are the leeks and the the melons and we had it so good in Egypt and why can't we go back to Egypt? This is hard. And it's like they're they're pulling themselves into this space of of longing for the past because the future is too terrifying and the present is is challenging. Um and obviously it's this fake, you know, imagined past. They were slaves in Egypt. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have this wonderful thing, but it was at least it was something that they knew. And facing the unknown that was unfolding in front of them was was hard. And when you're a parent, it, there's a lot of unknowns. You know, you put your kid to bed and you, they wake up the next morning and some developmental leap happened in the middle of the night and you have this whole other child and all your old tricks don't work. And you have to figure out how to deal with the human being that's in front of you right now. Um, and so it's sort of this process of constantly making peace with the unknown and embracing it. And also, like, Israel has its name from Jacob, right? The, the, swind mm -hmm. the swindler, the, uh, the, the saucy character. And, <laughs> and, and the Torah tells us, right, that his – it doesn't even say they played favorites. Isaac loved Esau. <laughs> Rebecca right. loved Jacob. So it wasn't even like, right. hey, we're not playing favorites. We're playing favorites, and you only have one parent love. And yet, the story of, of Jacob as one who wrestles with God, right? Even if somebody has made tons of parental mistakes, right? Like, you can always begin again at the beginning. God will wrestle with you, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was a real turning point for him, right? There's a moment, no matter how much we screw up, right? There's always this ability to kind of go head to head with, our biggest fears and our greatest possibility for light. Right? And when Jacob comes out of that encounter, he goes from being the guy who was trying to uh, do a number on his brother to somebody who was able to really sort of embrace him with kisses and love and, and connection. Um, it's like something healed in that encounter. And every time we make ourselves open to that, um, we open ourselves up to the possibility that, we can be healed in that way too. So can and maybe I, not a hundred percent. I think he, you know, he dies kind of a messy, complicated character who's like switching of rhyme and Menashe. Like, you know, 
you, you never get to perfect, but you get to better, and better is good. I feel like people think of like Judaism is the religion of rules and Christianity is the religion of grace or something. And I feel like what I hear you saying is that you have a pretty gracious religion. Um, it's not Christian religion, but it speaks grace in some of the sweetest sounds that I, I mean, hear in my own tradition. Yeah. I, I mean, we use different language for it. You know, grace isn't, uh, but that's just semantics really is what are you calling it? But this idea that, um, there's always a possibility for renewal. That's always there. Um, I mean, you have to work for it. It doesn't, in Judaism, it doesn't like auto magically happen just because, um, you know, I think this is probably one of the biggest theological differences between Judaism and Christianity. It's not, I mean, they say that Yom Kippur atones, like the day itself does the work of atonement, but there's also a really, really deep understanding that you have to do the work, right? You have to do the work of tshuva, of returning to become the kind of person that uh, you were supposed to be and you uh, fell off the path and we all fall off the path and you, you know, do stuff that you're not supposed to do, but you can't make amends with God until you've made amends with other people. Um, so there's really this sense of, you know, you have to do work, but if you're willing to do the work, like there's, it's all there available and waiting for you. So it's that, interesting uh, because you have this kind of, understanding of particularity right like and universalism mm -hmm. so you're you're fasting today mm -hmm. i sure am we're lamenting the um destruction of the temple yep and yet i, I feel like people think well if you're going to be particular about your religion you're going to be narrow-minded and not a good neighbor and or you could be a good universal neighbor but your kids won't have traditions but you seem like you're trying to hold those things together like i don't nurture the wow i mean part of the beauty of the book is like the primal experience of parenthood and bringing new life into the world and it, it seems like a universal a universalizing message rooted in the particular um yeah maybe um it's not a, you know i don't think nurture the wow is so rooted in the particular i tried to draw from the amazing sustenance that I've gotten in Judaism. Um, but I also have done my best to try to say, like, if Tich Nhat Hanh or Thomas Merton says something better, or Rumi, whoever, I'm going to quote them. Um, but you start and, from the particular, I mean, you're yeah. rooted in your tradition, but that made you like a universal friend to lots of people. Right. I, um, I'm a rabbi, you know, I've gone deep, deep, deep into my tradition. Um, but I don't think any tradition is meant to be ultimately particularistic. It's a path of connection and, um, and transformation and discipline that helps you to become the best, kindest, most connected to other people and most connected to yourself version of yourself that you possibly can. And the, the best version of yourself that, um, is full of love. Are you guys hearing, are you hearing the screaming in the background? I, I don't hear it that much. Okay. I hear minor there's a, screaming. There's a, you know, as, as I'm waxing philosophical about raising uh, children, my five-year-old is screaming at my husband. So, um, who is a mathematician? Know, that is, yes, it's true. That's, that's part of the work too. 
Um, but I believe that every religious tradition is meant to transform you in this way. And you have to, it's a set of specific practices and you have to go deep into that thing, but it all gets you to the same place. Yeah, I mean, you hold that tension well, because I feel like you're somebody that's very rude in your tradition, but also you have a universalizing kind of religious intuition. So are you so far left, you're right, or are you so far right, you're left? <laughs> I don't I, I don't know what that that means. You, yeah, I got it. I, I think you're going to have to tell me. If, what, uh, and you got arrested this year, right? I did. How was that? Um. Really profound. Um, I was with uh, a group of rabbis. There were 19 of us, 19 rabbis, um, who all got arrested protesting Trump's uh, travel ban, the Islamophobic, um, horrible travel ban in February. Um, There were 19 of us, largest group of rabbis ever arrested at once in history. Um, And it was really profound. I mean – I, I need to say that I definitely got arrested as a white person. Um, I can sort of go through all of the steps of of the experience, and it was clear that we were getting a very, very nice treatment. Um, and so, but I think that's part of it. Is that my it was like celebrity arrest? I, I mean, no, but they were really nice to us, and. Um, you know, I don't want to say NYPD is not really nice to everybody and that I hope that they are equally nice to all black and brown people that come to their gates. But I definitely was was feeling keenly the privilege that I had. Um, and I think that's part of the deal is that, um, you know, I, because I am in a position where it's fairly safe for me to get arrested, like I'm uh, I'm white, I'm cis. I'm, you know, was able to sort of like if things took longer or whatever, I had people who had my back. I didn't have to get to work in the morning, you know, um, whatever. I could take I could take liberties with my time in a way that other folks maybe don't have the liberty to. Um, and so therefore, all the more so that I feel like I had an obligation to put my body on the line. You know, there are enough people whose bodies are really on the line who are being deported and who are being denied entry into this country. And so, but, you know, this was a symbolic gesture I could make and I had an obligation to make it. Um, and the experience itself was really, I mean, you know, it was very profound sort of offering my, my, my body and my freedom up to the state um, to try to make something happen. A state you didn't trust. A state I don't trust. My friend Lisa Powell, who's a feminist theologian, teaches at Catholic school in Iowa. She posted something. She just started watching Handmaid's Tale. And uh, she said, I'm so pissed that people saying this is our future possible dystopia. She's like, this is women's lives for most of world history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Consent it, wasn't necessarily a defining feature of, of most women's lives for most of time. It's true. But you seem to wear complicated well. Like, you're a woman. You're Jewish. You identify as white, and that, and, and that's, and you have olive skin. Like we're both, um, we both uh, would uh, probably not need thirty um, SPF, somebody. <laughs> but like, is that hard? I mean, like, so right now, right, we're raging politically. Are the Democrats too identity politics or not identity politics enough? But you seem to walk a line uh, that you're tough to classify. <laughs> um. 
I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm a person in the world and I've got it really good in a lot of ways. And yes, there's anti-Semitism, blah, blah, blah. But Jews have it better now in America now than we have had it pretty much at any point in history for the last 2000 years. So, you know, I got a lot of privilege. Um, and I just feel like our job as human beings is to try to uh, mitigate suffering. And I'm in a position to be able to be useful to other people. So I should do that. In an interview you did last year, somebody asked you like for parenting advice. And, and I loved what your response was. You said, I wrote Nurture the Wow. Um, I'm a reflective expert on parenthood and the experience, not on parenting. I can't tell you what to do about screen time or bullying or things. I can tell you what it's like to have a child and go through that. Like, do you still get asked those kinds of questions? Like, do do you get boxed into being a parenting expert still? Yeah. I mean, every time I go to talk about the book, there's inevitably somebody who's like, well, what should I do when I'm at synagogue and my kid wants to this? Or what about screen time? Or what about my teenager who doesn't want to talk to me? And it's like, if you want some sort of behavioral tricks that are going to make your kid, you know, make their bed in the morning or get into Harvard or something like that. I am really not the person for you. Um, I don't have any of that. I am, uh, you know, bewildered and making this up as I, I go along, just like most parents out there. Um, but what I do know about is facing your own messiness about being a person in the world. And, um, I really believe that probably 95 of what our percent of what our children need, you know, once we get past the sort of basics of food and clothing and the sort of basic care is just for somebody to show up and see them and to connect with them and to, to hear them on their terms. And there's a lot of stuff that we have that keeps us from doing that. I don't like playing with my kids because I think it's boring or I'm antsy and I've got something going on at work and I'm, you know, thinking about that or I'm trying to get the dishwasher loaded so I don't have to do it later. Uh, Whatever it is, like, like there's all sorts of stuff that keeps me from just looking at the kid and saying, you know, Ayaka, right? The question that God asked uh, Mm. Adam in the Garden of Eden, where are you? Where are you? Yeah. And, um, Yeah. Uh, you know, being a person is messy and, and ooky and hard. And as a rabbi and as a person, I guess, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so I just started bringing some of those questions into the question of like, from the parent's point of view, let's talk about the experience of raising these tiny, insane people <laughs> with terrible table manners that hug us and then we melt. Like, what? what is that? And that's why you need the book of Leviticus, right? At some point, we need to deal with table manners. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what the book of Leviticus is about. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> table, priestly table manners. I want to take a quick break from my conversation with Danya Ruttenberg to ask you a question. Do you like this podcast? Are you enjoying it right now? Do you want to help keep it going? If so, you can sponsor this podcast by going to Patreon. If you just go to the podcast website, giveandtake.fireside.fm, you can find 
the link there. Several people have already done it, and they're helping keep this podcast going, and you can too. So before we continue with Fiona, I want to take a moment to thank the sponsors that are helping make this project go. Thanks to David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com/scottkentjones and there you can find information about how to give. If you give just 5 bucks a month, you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to my sponsors. And please, if you like this podcast, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to my conversation with Donya Ruttenberg. If people are are Christians, Jewish, or part of the nuns, and I don't mean Sally Field, like flying nuns, I mean nuns. I feel like Nurture the Wow is a great way into the Torah in the sense of it seems like you're trying to narrate an experience of what it was like for the divine to parent. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of what I'm trying to do for sure. There's, you know, all of these metaphors of God. I mean, we talk about God, the father a lot. And if you assume the Jewish theology assumes that God doesn't have a body, I understand Christianity is more complicated on that topic. Um, but certainly there are a lot of powerful ways of thinking about God. I love how you said God. that. I understand Christianity is a little more complicated on the topic. Moving on. I, you know, um, I, but there are a lot of ways to think about our experience of God and God's experience of us and the Israelites going through their terrible twos in the, in the desert, <laughs> in the Torah. Um, and there are also ways to think more expansively about God. That if you know, we listen to parents' voices, maybe we would um, find new metaphors and new ways of understanding and connecting to God. Is also part of it. Yeah. Can I read you something? Yeah. This is from a, a thousand-page book that sits on my de- desk. Frank Lake, clinical theology. He's a Christian psychiatrist um, who understands the Bible very well, and he says uh, the biography of Jacob as of the primal patriarch Abraham, cannot be reduced to the level of ancient history from which one might learn a few lessons. The patriarchs are not on a par with Hammurabi or Hippocrates, who have lessons for doctors, or Alexander the Great, whose story probably has something to teach politicians. The patriarchs are more than examples of this or that conduct and its results. They are in our very bones, if not in our past genetically, certainly on our spirit, in our spiritual ontogenesis. When we sing in moments of national identity, O God of Jacob, by whose hand thy people still are fed, we are harking back through all our fathers to the first pa- patriarchal group. The confrontation of the individual by the creator and the continuity of the covenant in the family, in the chosen people, in a family of nations, all begin here. We are spiritual children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in these matters, the intervening generations are of little account. The youngins speak of the power of archetypes. Rather, in the same way we in Judeo-Christian thought can bear witness to the power of the patriarchs and matriarchs, right? That's my edit. Reflections upon their lives impart more than mere information. It activates a faith like theirs. Is that true? Which part? All that was of a it. lot of things. All of it. 
All of it. I mean, the patriarchs are complicated, right? The the whole book of Genesis is the story of a dysfunctional family pouring its pain and loss onto one generation and the next in some ways. Um, and in some ways, it's about the work of healing that pain and loss and refusing to pass it on. Um, there's a midrash. Um, a Jewish legend that says that Abraham's father, that Abraham went and smashed uh, his father's idols. Terach was his father, and Terach, he, Terach was an idol seller, and so Abraham went and smashed all of his idols. And so Terach threw him in, into the oven, and it was only by a fiat of um, of God that he lived. And that's really powerful when you think about Abraham, on the one hand, being this guy who can tell God, uh, don't destroy the the city of Sodom if there are fifty righteous people. What is that? You know, how could you think about destroying the city of Sodom if uh, there are thirty righteous people? What are you talking about? And on the other hand, God says, "Yeah, send Hagar and Ishmael out." And Abraham's like, "Okay." And God says, "Take your son, your your beloved son, and and sacrifice him on the top top of Mount Moriah." And Abraham says, "Okay." It's like. He's able to stand up for everybody else, but he's not able to stand up for his children. Um, you know, that's uh, that's some old, old pain rearing its head. Yeah, there's the mid- yet- there's the midrash too, right? That Isaac was blind because of the tears that fell in his eyes, and right, and 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 we do have in the Torah, right? Like Isaac doesn't see well, and it, I don't know if it's biological or psychological, like, he, but he can't see his kids. Correct. Literally cannot see them. And yet he was able to come together with his uh, with his brother and bury Abraham when the time came. You know, there was some work of healing that was done. But again, I mean, you're right. He literally could not see his children in front, sitting in front of him, asking for his blessing. Daddy, see me. Give me a blessing. And he couldn't do it. Um so, you know, for those of us who are parents who don't want to keep passing on that that legacy, who want to do something that's a little more whole and, 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 and full, we have to do some work. And you have a story of loss in your own life, right? Like, Yeah. You lost a parent early. My mom died of cancer when I was a junior in college. Does that – how does that shape – your relationship with your kids in the sense of like kids look to parents for permanence, right? Like, and stability. Like, how do you, does it make you like sterner or softer? Mm, That's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I'll ever really be able to know. Um, I certainly do feel like there are certain, there's a very specific kind of, well, in my fantasy, it's a certain kind of a support in parenting that I don't get from my mom. And I, she was a great person. So I, I trust that whatever funkiness we were having that residual from my teenage years would have been worked out by the time I was in my forties. Um, but I mean, who knows? People have really difficult relations with their parents around raising their own kids. So who knows if my mom would have been helpful or not, but, um, I have this story in my head about what that would have been like. And mostly it's just, you know, this sort of deep longing of wanting my children to have had access to her. Um, but yeah, in a lot of ways I've kind of had to 
the the sort of late adolescence um extended adolescence that happens in american culture like i kind of had to finish raising myself um so and it's I, writing know, part of that me in a lot of ways hmm? i mean it's writing part of that like how you've raised yourself absolutely i mean i was writing from way before my mom was sick it was a key part of who I was, but it's always been a way, you know, and particularly since then of, of, um, pulling the, the dark stuff up to the light. Um, and yeah. And I think there's, you know, certain insights aren't getting handed to you. So you have to come up with them yourself. I mean, you know, it's like it's this classic ar- archetype, and I'm, I, 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 I don't mean to. I mean, listen, I'm the her- I'm the hero of my own story, so I can I can talk about the hero archetype. But um, you know, the teacher always has to die for yeah. the gotta kill the you know, Buddha. Yeah, yeah, you know, Dumbledore, Yoda, or whoever it is. Uh, you know, all the Disney princesses are are motherless. Um, there is this sense of you can't move forward in your own way until the, the familiar guide is gone. Um, but yeah. So you're one of the most Christian friendly Jews I know. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give to Christian preachers and what advice do you think Christians could give to rabbis as everybody mm-hmm. on the weekends? Cause it's a daunting thing, right? To you, you do this all the time. You have to open up an ancient text and speak eternal truths. Like, you know, Lessing says that, you know, the eternal teach of history lays there. Like, what do you think Christians do well? And you'd love, hey, we should do this more. And what do you think, like, you would say to Christians, hey, assholes. Well, <laughs> but like, if you could get a little uh, Jewish um, insight into uh, Christian preaching, what would make it better? Wow. Just into preaching? I mean, you know, what you guys, what, what Christianity does really just like, so well in general is this whole love thing really understanding that the whole point of, of, of the work, the whole point of all of it is love. And for Jews, those of us particularly who are connected to Jewish law, there's all this stuff that we do. That's a discipline for transformation. Um, and some of it, you know, tzedakah, tzedek is, is justice. Whereas caritas, the, the root of charity is, is love. And so, you know, I can do this sort of Jewish superiority thing. Well, we give because it's the just thing to do. Whether or not you feel like it, you have to do it. This is what we do. And um, in some ways, that's important. And in other ways, like reminding people that that you got to do the work of your heart is also, um, I think, really major. And, yeah, um, we have what to learn about that. Um Preaching in general, I don't know, be sensitive with our texts is the main thing I would probably say. Um, definitely, uh, you know, there's every once in a while I, I, I have a Christian clergy friend who will want to use Rashi or some other Jewish interpreter of text um, to talk about what's going on in Deuteronomy to prove something in the New Testament. And that feels a little uncomfortable to me. Um, and like understand that the, that the Jewish textual interpretation, the textual line of interpretation is is there and has its own integrity, um, independent of of the New Testament. 
Um, and that the Hebrew Bible, I understand, is interpreted one way in Christianity, but it, that it's interpreted another way in Judaism, and that you can kind of hold both, and and that's okay. Um, you know, I don't know where objective truth is, and I will be delighted, you know, when I die to find out if I got any of the answers of the quiz right. Um, Do you think about the afterlife much? I not really. I'm pretty agnostic on it. I I don't think our job is to worry about that. But resurrection, honestly. it's interesting though, because resurrection starts like Robert Jensen, Christian theologian, thinks the whole power of the Hebrew Bible is in this question in Ezekiel: Can these bones live? Right? Because everybody mm. feels like loss, um, pain, oppression leaves you in a place where you can't live again. And mm. so resurrection becomes a metaphor for going back into the land. And then the people that wrote the New Testament turned it into a literal hope. Like, no, there was one Jew resurrected in the middle of history, you know, and this is everyone's right. hope. It, 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 can you preach without hope for the afterlife? Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're preaching, right? Is I think there's enough work to be done here, right? The work that we need to do to transform ourselves, the work we need to do to transform our the relationships in our lives, our relationship with God, and so much work to be done for those of uh, us in our in our world who are not in a position of power, people who are suffering, people who are vulnerable. Um, so I, you know, I feel like our to do list is pretty long, and and if there's deep existential pain, I, you know, I think we can hold it. Um, I don't know what happens after we die. I just don't. Um, I've been on the deathbed of a great many people as they were close to death or dying or as they died. Um, I was, uh, when I was a hospital chaplain, I worked on the, the MICU, the medical ICU, which is where very, very sick people go. Um, and I know there's something powerful happens and what that is and what that looks like. I, yeah, I, I don't think it matters for our work in the world. You strike me as a very pastoral rabbi. And when I say that, uh, pastoral is from the, the shepherding metaphor, right? Mm. Like you, I, like, I think some people are rabbis or ministers and not pastors. Mm -hmm. But you seem like somebody that, I think of pastor types, shepherd types, as people who really are dialed in to the sensitivities of the human condition. Do you feel like yeah. that's where you thrive? Or are you someone that like, writes pastorally and it's sort of like in your own artistic world. No, I mean, I love the, the pastoral thing and the, the, that piece of the work. Um, and right now in the, the role that I'm in, in my job, I, I have less of that and I, I feel it as a, as a keen loss. Um, and I've worked when I've worked as a hospital chaplain or as a campus rabbi and had more of those pastoral relationships as part of my day to day. It's, it's, powerful and humbling for me to be able to, to hold that space for other people. Um, they say that every rabbi has two sermons and one of mine is definitely about sort of tuning into your feelings and not being afraid of them. And, you know, that's my work for myself, but it's also a lot of the work that I do with other people. And being able to help people hold whatever whatever true thing is happening right now. So, what's interesting to me 
at least over the past five years or so, what I feel I've, I've learned from you and other Jewish friends is that Jews, I feel like, are better at separating believing and belonging. Mm. Like you can belong no matter what you believe. And I feel like Christians yeah. almost equate it. So like, uh, okay, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? It's like uh, the three second rule when gum falls out of your mouth. Well, <laughs> if the gum fell out of your mouth and you die, you go to hell. You know, and, like, right. and, and yet I hear some Jews say, like my friend Leah Leibowitz, we wish we had more believing. Like, and is there is there a tough like that? That seems to me to be the question in a secular world. Like, what's the connection between believing and belonging? And how do you navigate that? I mean, uh, I really think there's room for a lot of us. And the thing about believing, as you just framed it, is that it seems sort of like an on-off switch. Like, either you believe or you don't. And in Judaism, I mean, sure, you have Maimonides is like, you know, if you if your theology is not exactly like this, then get out of here. Um, but there's also a lot of space for exploring and questioning. And the emphasis is on what you do and not what you think. And so if you keep Shabbat in some way, and, you know, I'm – Pluralist. There's a lot of different way, things that that can look like. Um, if you're connecting with the holidays, if you're coming together in community, if you're doing works of justice in this way, you know, like there are a lot of different ways to to do Jewish, um, and there are a lot of different theologies too. I mean, you know, if you're Team Maimonides or the 16th century Kabbalists. In Sfat, or if you're, you know, more uh, along, I mean, my Maimonides and the Kabbalists hated each other. Like that, those are two very distinct things. In case that wasn't clear, or you know, or maybe your thinking is more along the lines of, uh, you know, 19th century reform, uh, post Enlightenment folks, or maybe you know, or, or 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 there are a lot of different possible ways to think about what what all of this is. And um, the Jewish philosopher uh, Ishayo Leibovitz, who was a great, cranky 20th century guy, um, once observed that, like, the thing that Jews hold, that holds Jews together all these centuries is not what they think. Because, you know, what Maimonides thinks the, the purpose of prayer is versus the Kabbalists is, like, totally different situation happening, but they all say the same words. Right, what you do is the same, and how you think about it is different. And so, um, you know, it's our practice that holds us together as a people. I think. Who's your favorite theologian? Oh, depends on the day. Today, who is it today? Today, I still like Heschel. I really do. I find a lot of inspiration from him. Um, he's so, that's sort of a, you know cliched answer in the Jewish community at this point, particularly in the world I run, I, I run in, but. But you really, seem to write in his voice. I mean, for today, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I'll take that as a huge compliment. Um, he was a phenomenologist, right? The, how we talk about God cannot be separated from our experience of God. And we have to have some humility in knowing that that's going to be necessarily imperfect. <laughs> right? there, like, there was like one guy that stopped Carl Bart in his tracks in his like twenties or thirties, like when Bart was like the rage in Europe. And I forget his name, but he was a Lutheran theologian. And he, people say it's the one time Bart was 
like speechless. He says, Professor, Herr Professor Brett, this is great, but we live here on the ground. <laughs> right. And that, that's part of, uh, yeah. nurture the wow. Right. Like, like nurture. I mean, cause if you're not a parent, you could look at the title and be like, okay, this is for me, but it's a universalizing book. You're just saying in the book, Hey, we've got to tend to spirituality ground up <laughs> where people like actually live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it starts, I mean, you know, uh, in the introduction, I say this isn't a parenting book. It's a parenthood book, right? It's about the, the act of, um, the, the, the state of being a parent. And, um, my friend, Laura, who is, um, one of my great, uh, friends and counselors and, and collaborators with, with this stuff says it's actually, it's a personing book because it's really all about how to live the, the vow, the, the ethos of I vow. Um, if we're going to name check theologians, I, I boober, I cannot run away from him in my work. So I guess he's one of my favorite theologians. Um, cause I've been citing him in everything I've done, uh, for the last 15 years. Um, that if we're going to really do the work of, of trying to see the other person in their full, messy, gorgeous, exquisite humanity and to be able to have all of us connect to all of them without sort of preconceived boundaries about what, what that relationship is going to look like, um, you know, it's messy and it's hard and it's complicated. And some of some, you know, there are unique complications when the human being you're trying to connect to is, is five and, you know, adamantly insisted he didn't need to use the bathroom and then just beat himself. Like, <laughs> you know, but a lot of the work is, is the same any which way is like, what, how am I in my own way as I'm trying to connect with this other person? Danya, do you think of yourself in Christian circles? There's this weird distinction between like pastor and theologian. And mm -hmm. I, does that exist in Jewish circles where like somebody is a rabbi and practical and they're, you know, doing things like bar mitzvahs and keeping day schools open or they're theologians and what do they know about day schools? And, but you seem to be someone that like, how do you identify more as a theologian or more as a rabbi? I mean, I, that, that distinction isn't as, as major in Judaism, I don't think. Um, I mean, one of the tricky things about the rabbinate is that it's That's one of my favorite words, by the way, the rabbinate. What? The rabbinate. The rabbinate. Um, I'm rabbinate it. Um, it's like so big and broad and expansive, and you're supposed to be able to, um, you know, be a deep theologian and teacher of Torah and have the practical and the nitty gritty and the personnel management. And if somebody didn't prep their Torah reading, you're supposed to be able to, to just have it all, all, you know, have all of Torah memorized and, and this and that and the other and the logistical and the, the concrete. And of course, nobody is all of these things. And we all have our um, weaker spots and stronger spots. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think the pastoral and the theological are separate, right? If you take human beings seriously and want to listen closely to them and, you know, see the pain that's that's um, in their hearts, whatever, that's part of, of connecting to God. And if you take God seriously, that leads you to connecting with other people. Um, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about spirituality, we talk about like prayer and meditation and these sort of even if you're in a room full of other people, it's literally like a solitary enterprise, right? This thing you're doing on your own or even Bible study, which is like Torah study is like, you know, something you're doing with other people, but it's really, it's about me. 
Um, but I, you know, having kids sort of blew that up for me when I realized that. Is it because you can't control anything? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's about control, but it's also this thing of like my understanding of what prayer is got stuck in the blender when I realized that singing my kids lullabies when they were going to sleep was a form of prayer and that my prayers were sort of lullabies in their own ways. And, um, Yeah, I just – this idea that there are two separate realms and one is dealing with people who are messy and weird and one is connecting with God, which is easy and uncomplicated. Like it's just such a false dichotomy. Is that why the Torah is so complex? Because it's like it it captures the whole human religious experience. Like Nurture the Web, you're talking about trying to broaden our horizons about the human religious intuition, right? Yeah, I mean, you know. Why Why is the Torah so complex? I don't know. The Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, says, turn it and turn it and turn it and everything is in it. Right? They say there are 70 faces of Torah. This is, you know, if, um, like, it's not a pop song lyric, right? It's not something that you read once and you understand and you digest and, that's, and then the, you've got it. It's, um, if it weren't bottomless, it wouldn't be our text. You're somebody who's not shy about your politics and you're, you're in the resistance. I mean, you're, I mean, left of center. Pretty. How do you keep that from being an idol? Like, how do you, cause you seem like you have a bigger picture, like, and you get along with people that disagree with you and Christians love you like me. Um, how do you, uh, how, how do you hold in tension your political passions and also seem, you really seem like an open-minded person to me. And I know you. Like, I mean, I feel like we've gotten to know each other. And I feel like that's yeah. really true about who you are. So how, are, are those intention at all? I mean, I don't walk around with this intention about um, – yeah, I mean, none of this is conscious, I don't think. But there's two things seem very clear to me. One, I don't know any – I don't know everything. And two, some things ain't right, right? Like, there are things that just aren't right. And – it's not really rocket science. If you're going to be pouring money into de- deporting people who have committed no crime and are just trying to run from unsafe situations and to be in a safe place, like it seems pretty clear to me which uh, which side God's on in that uh, in that case, right? Or if you have people who are fleeing war and are refugees and just want to come someplace where they can have a life and be people and have all of the great things that we have, which is to say food to eat and clothes to wear and school to go to and all of that. It seems pretty clear to me which side God's on. Um, We're commanded 36 times in the Torah to take care of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. 36, by the way, is double 18, and 18 is the numerological, you know, sort of the number letter, I forget the English word for this, um, for life. The Hebrew word for life is chai, which the, those letters correspond to the number 18. So double life, we're required to to take care of the vulnerable. And we're told over and over again in the Torah. And Does in your the husband Testament, laugh at you when you drop that in sermons? Like 18 to the 18th power, it's like double stuff. Because he's a mathematician. He's, I mean, he's Israeli, so he's he's very, very difficult to impress because he got all this stuff in preschool. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, you read the, the Old Testament and the New Te- the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And, um, like, it's pretty clear that taking money away from poor people and giving it to rich people is not what we're supposed to be doing. 
Um, so some things seem pretty clear to me and other things like it's clear that I don't know everything. Um, and I do my best to try to shut up and listen. Um, particularly to people whose experiences are not like mine. Um, not only, but also, and whatever comes out of my mouth is, is <laughs> whatever comes out of the wash in that, I guess. Rosenspeck says that, um, God raised up the church to take the God of Israel to the nations and that Israel's mission is to convert the inner pagan in every Christian. And, and we see all sorts of paganism right and left these days. Um, thank you. I feel like you uh, preach to my inner pagan all the time. And um, <laughs> you're a real gift to the world. And so is Nurture the Wow. Uh, you're pretty amazing yourself. So, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come talk to you. And we'll have you back on. Yay. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And please check out Danya's book, Nurture the Wild, just out in paper book. It's a great read, and she is a great conversation partner, whatever spiritual tradition you come from. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.